Well, folks, for, for everyone else, again, a very warm welcome and good morning. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Genesis and chapter 31. Genesis 31. I want you to hold that in front of you uh, just for a moment. I, I intend to read the entirety of the text this morning. Um, it is a large text. It's 55 verses. And so our comments will really, really need to be at the 40,000-foot level, not, not at, the, at the lower level uh, where we're looking at more detail. But before I come to this larger text, I do want to reorient ourselves to where we find Jacob. As you look at this text, you recognize that Jacob is still in the land of his exile. Um, in one sense, I think as we read this text, you might not think that this is exilic, but, but it certainly is. Uh, Jacob has been really forced from his home. Uh, he's been driven to the land of his uncle. And as we've already seen thus far, um, that existence, though materially blessed by God, uh, was certainly not an enjoyable experience for Jacob. This is Jacob. In exile. We also need to remember that as we look at this text, we also are supposed to see a man who has been greatly blessed. His afflictions are great, his blessings are manifold. And we see that in various ways. And not only do we see that as the reader, not only does Jacob know that as the recipient, but we've already seen that Laban himself and others around recognize that the favor of God rests upon Jacob. Both of those themes, Jacob in exile and Jacob very visibly blessed by God, really underpin what we find in our text this morning. Now, as we look at this text, as I said, it is a larger text. It's 55 verses, but it is easily divisible. Um, You and I were treated here to a single episode um, that that has very defined points of progression. Uh, As you look at the first 16 verses, you find Jacob's defense for why he must flee Laban. Verses 17 to 25, you find that flight and then Laban's pursuit. Verses 26 to 35, you find Laban now makes a case for why he pursued. Jacob, in verses 43 to 55, then really concludes, uh, sorry, verses 36 to 42, concludes Laban's case by making his own. And the story really resolves in verses 43 to 55, as covenant is made between the two men. Now, that's the general outlay of the text. I want to ask a question that we'll return to toward the end of our time this morning. And that is, why do we have this text? Why do we have this text? There's a right way and a wrong way to ask that question. I trust you know that. The way that I want you to ask that question is, what is significant about this text for the church through all ages? We're given a very very straightforward episode, but an episode that is relatively um, detailed in its presentation to us. So why is this text here? I want you to hold on to that question as we read the text together. And so let's come to the text, Uh, Genesis 31, and starting here at verse 1. Hear the word of the living God. And he, that's Jacob, heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob hath taken away all that was our father's, and of that which was our father's hath he gotten. 
all this glory. And Jacob beheld the countenance of Laban, and behold, it was not toward him as before. And the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers, and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. And Jacob sent, and called Rachel and Leah, to the field unto his flock, and said unto them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not toward me as before, but the God of my father hath been with me. And ye know that with all my power I have served your father. And your father hath deceived me and changed my wages ten times. Friend, that's just, of course, a definite number for an indefinite number there. But God suffered him not to hurt me. If he said thus, the speckled shall be thy wages, then all the cattle bear speckled. And if he said thus, the ring straight shall be thy hire, then bear all the cattle ring straight. Thus God hath taken away the cattle of your father and given them to me. And it came to pass at the time that the cattle conceived that I lifted up mine eyes and saw in a dream, and, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the cattle were ring straight, speckled. And gristled. The angel of God spake unto me in a dream, saying, Jacob. And I said, Here am I. And he said, Lift up now thine eyes, and see all the rams which leap upon the cattle are ring straight, speckled, and gristled. For I have seen all that Laban doeth unto thee. I am the God of Bethel where thou anointest the pillar, and where thou vowest a vow unto me. Now arise, get thee out of this land, and return unto the land of thy kindred. Let's pause there just for a moment. I want you to notice here in this text, Jacob gives his wives, Leah and Rachel, a very straightforward defense as to why they are to leave the land. Uh, Jacob's defense is actually quite intricate. There's really five components to it. I want you to notice, first of all, Jacob appeals to Rachel and Leah as those who would have had intimate knowledge of Jacob's conduct and also of the various things that had fallen out in Jacob's time with them. He appeals to their knowledge. Um, this is going to be an important feature of this text. He knows that they know the truth. The second aspect of this is that he urges that this movement here is from divine direction. Uh, Jacob is not here going out on a whim. Uh, he is, as it were, simply urging his family uh, to comply with God's command. Third, you'll recognize here that, that Jacob is very clear that his father-in-law and his uncle has dealt with him very deceitfully. This is not a safe place for his family to be. And he makes that case rather pointedly. In the fourth part of his argument, he appeals again to God's blessing, and he demonstrates that, that though the cattle of Jacob has flourished, and this is really important if we're going to understand the previous chapter aright, Jacob is saying that all of this blessedness came to Jacob despite both Laban's deception, and in one sense, even without uh, Jacob's secondary or instrumental use. In other words, what Jacob is saying here is, I didn't do anything myself, and, and Laban certainly tried to, to impede these things, but the blessing of God came to me nonetheless. 
I am, I am in other words, says Jacob, not stealing anything from your father, from my uncle. And he concludes in the fifth part by reiterating the fact that this, this return to the land of Canaan is from divine command. So, friend, as we're looking at Jacob, I want you to keep in front of you that we're getting a really intimate picture of how the man thinks, how he interprets providence, how he makes decisions, in a striking way, how he looks at how he should deal with his wives, even. All of these things we see in Jacob. And I would submit to you that this kind of text certainly corrects how, how popularly uh, Jacob is, is thought of today. But that brings us to verse 14, where we have the wives' responses. In verse 14 we read, And Rachel and Leah answered and said unto him, Is there any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not counted of him as strangers? For he hath sold us and quite devoured also our money. For all the riches which God hath taken from our father, that is ours and our children's. Now then, whatsoever God hath said unto thee, do. Stop just there for a moment. I want to make a few observations. Uh, First of all, uh, the text is very clear. This is something that's spoken in unison. Uh, For the first time, uh, these two sisters, Jacob's wives, are agreed. Um, We can't forget that. The second element of this, of course, is that this compliance with Jacob's urgings, certainly falls more from a materialistic consideration than it does out of deference to the divine command. I want you to notice what you have there in verses 14 and 15, and 16 as well. Um, The sense in those verses is that the dowry that ought to have been theirs um, upon marriage, Laban had reinvested it into his own flock. This is the cruelty, the wickedness of Laban, uh, certainly on display. But it is because of this, the text very clearly tells us, that Rachel and Leah are primarily willing to comply with this urgent call to return to Canaan. So as we make a contrast just between Jacob and his wives, I want you to notice that in Jacob's urgings in the beginning, his argument is very much predicated upon divine direction. When his wives speak about compliance, they emphasize the fact that they simply, well, they simply feel as though they've been mistreated. We'll come back to that certainly at the end. But that brings us to the second element of our narrative, and that's what commences there at verse 17, the flight and then Laban's pursuit. Then Jacob rose up and set his sons and his wives upon camels, and he carried away all his cattle and all his goods which he had gotten, the cattle of his getting, which he had gotten in Padanaram, for to go to Isaac his father in the land of Canaan. And Laban went to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the images that were his father, her father's. The word images there is the word teraphim. Teraphim is predominantly in the Old Testament a word that's translated idols in our English translations. Verse 20, Jacob stole away unawares to Laban the Syrian, in that he told him not that he fled. So he fled with all that he had, and he rose up, passed over the river, and set his face toward Mount Gilead. And it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob was fled. 
And he took his brethren with him and pursued after him seven days' journey. And they overtook him in the Mount Gilead. And God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night, and said unto him, Take heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. Then Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mount, and Laban, his brethren, pitched in the mount of Gilead. Now, friend, as we look at this text... Um, obviously you and I are looking at certain cultural elements that, that we are far removed from in our own experience. But I think we can piece together uh, pretty clearly what's taking place. You remember in chapter 30, Jacob is blessed incredibly. He has families of servants now in his household. Uh, he also has incredible wealth. Uh, his family, his own family, is growing quite, quite large. And so Jacob's flight, you need to recognize, is a rather significant move. So also is Laban's pursuit. The image you and I should have in mind are two armies, one pursuing the other. That's the imagery. It's very militaristic in its outlook. These are two moving, two encamping armies here. And now we return to our text, verse 26. And Laban said to Jacob, What hast thou done? Thou hast stolen away unawares to me, and carried away my daughters as captives taken with a sword. Uh, Wherefore didst thou flee away secretly, and steal away from me, and and didst not tell me that I might have sent thee away with mirth, and with songs, with, with tabret, and with harp? And hast not suffered me to kiss my sons and my daughters? I just want to stop right there. Friend, every line of this is obviously feigned. Every line of this that Laban gives here is obviously a lie. Uh, And I want you to recognize as well, I want you to recognize how Laban emphasizes the possessive in every one of these questions. All of this is very telling. All of this reinforces what we've seen of Laban thus far. Again, in the middle of verse 28, Thou hast now done foolishly in so doing. It is in the power of my hand to do you hurt. But the God of your father, I want you to notice the possessive there as well, spake unto me yesternight, saying, Take heed that thou speak not to Jacob either good or bad. And now, though thou wouldest needs be gone, because thou soar longest after thy father's house, yet wherefore hast thou stolen? My gods. Now, up to this point, you need to recognize that Laban is making his case. He's seeking to demonstrate that his pursuit is legitimate because Jacob's activities in this case certainly were unwarranted. I want you to notice in verse 31, Jacob's reply. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, Peradventure thou wouldest take by force thy daughters from me. I should have noticed, strikingly, first of all, this demonstrates Jacob's love for both wives. Um, He doesn't cite the the fear that Laban would steal his cattle or his children even. He does love Rachel and Leah. But the second thing I want you to recognize here is that Jacob is certainly very much alive to the fact that Laban is a cruel man. Uh, Jacob certainly is is afraid (laughs) that 
that Laban will do the very thing that he fears that he will, uh, that he will take his family from him by force. Uh, and if, if we're looking at this in terms of an argument, uh, friend, all that Jacob has to do is to indicate the fact that Laban came out pursuing him with men, and presumably with swords. Verse 32. With whomsoever thou findest thy gods, let him not live. Before our brethren discern thou what is thine with me, and to take it to thee. For Jacob knew not that Rachel had stolen them. Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the two maidservants' tents, but he found them not. Then went he out of Leah's tent, and entered into Rachel's tent. Rachel had taken the images, and put them in camel's furniture, and sat upon them. Laban searched all the tent, but found them not. And she said to her father, Let it not displease my lord that I cannot rise up before thee, for the custom of women is upon me. And he searched, but found not the images. Down to now our fourth part, Jacob's case, in verse 36. And Jacob was wroth, and chode with Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that thou hast so hotly pursued after me? Whereas thou hast searched all my stuff, what hast thou found of all thy household stuff? Set it here before my brethren and thy brethren, that they may judge betwixt us both. Now, friend, I want you to notice that this mirrors Laban's case. You remember Laban begins with all of those questions, demonstrating seemingly that that Jacob's behavior was, was inexcusable. Well, Jacob does precisely the same thing in the opening of his case, only uh, Jacob's questions here are certainly based on very demonstrable fact. Uh, Laban has searched and has found that Jacob, in fact, was not complicit in any thievery. Verse 38. This twenty years have I been with thee, thy ewes and thy she-goats have not cast their young, and the rams of thy flock have I not eaten. That which was torn of beasts, I brought not unto thee. I bear the loss of it. Of my hand didst thou require it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. In the day the the drought consumed me, and, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from mine eyes. Thus have I been twenty years in thy house. I served thee fourteen years for thy two daughters, and six years for thy cattle, and thou hast changed my wages ten times. Except the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely thou hadst sent me away now empty. God hath seen mine affliction, and the labor of my hands, and rebuked thee yesternight. I want you to notice in this portion, you and I see a picture, uh, I think a clearer picture than we've seen thus far, of Jacob's sufferings under Laban. Jacob was a dutiful nephew, a dutiful son-in-law, to the point where he bore even the expenses of Laban's flock, uh, Laban's cattle, that that were not, certainly, uh, from from Jacob's mishandling. This is the character of Jacob. Uh, friend, again, this should correct, I think, many, uh, the views of many with regard to the patriarch. But I also want you to notice that while this is certainly rebuke, I want you to notice that he leaves the rebuke of Laban ultimately with the Lord. 
You see that very clearly in verse 42. Uh, He does not urge beyond what God himself has given Laban in the dream the night before. Not only, not only, friend, then, is Jacob demonstrating that he's been faithful. Uh, Jacob also demonstrates a real humility. He has a strong case, but ultimately he leaves the case and it's handling with God. So that brings us to the conclusion here at verse 43. And Laban answered and said unto Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and these cattle are my cattle, and all that thou seest is mine. And what can I do this day unto these my daughters, or unto their children which they have borne? Friend, I want to stop there just for a second, because you recognize here that Laban makes no answer to what Jacob has charged him with. In fact, in this moment, Laban diverts the conversation entirely. I also want you to recognize that at the end of that text that we just read, Laban tells us the only reason that he has not let his sword fall on Jacob. It's not the divine command, ultimately. No, at this moment, Laban says, it is because of the love that I bear toward my daughters and their children. I do not strike you. Friend, I want you to recognize here that this is also part of Jacob's suffering. He went to an uncle whom he served faithfully and dutifully. He went to soon a father-in-law who again he served faithfully and without complaint even though his father-in-law dealt so poorly with him. And even though Jacob had been a greater man than a son to Laban, Laban tells him here very pointedly, the only reason I don't smite you is because of my daughters and my grandchildren. So that brings us to verse 44. Now therefore come now, let us make a covenant, I and thou, and let it be for a witness between me and thee. Jacob took a stone and set it up for a pillar. Jacob said unto his brethren, gather stones, and and they took stones and made an heap. And they did eat there upon the heap. Laban called it Yegar Shahadutha, but Jacob called it Gilead. And Laban said, This heap is a witness between me and thee this day. Therefore was the name of it called Gilead. At Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent one from another. If thou shalt afflict my daughters, Or if thou shalt take other wives beside my daughters, no man is with us. See, God is betwixt me and thee. Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold this pillar, which I have cast betwixt me and thee. This heap be witness, and this pillar be witness, that I will not pass over this heap to thee, and thou shalt not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me for harm. The God of Jacob and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge betwixt us. Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered sacrifice upon the mount and called his brethren to eat bread. And he did eat bread and tarried all night in the mount. Early in the morning, Laban rose up and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned to his place. Something I want you to notice in this covenant is first of all that Laban is the one who initiates. He says, let there be a covenant. 
um, but I want you to notice how eager Jacob is to make the covenant. Uh, he urges that we gather stones. It's the memorial. The memorializing of this covenant is Jacob's idea. Uh, so solemn is it in Jacob's mind, and so desirable is it to the patriarch. I want you to notice in, in Laban's dealings with Jacob in this covenant, again, you and I are acquainted with the fact that Laban is very pleased to, to cast the most negative, the harshest reflections on Jacob. I want you to notice just, just how striking this is. Whenever you look at verse 52, no, sorry, well, let's go, let's go even before that. Let's look at verse 50. If thou shalt afflict my daughters, says Laban. Well, that's rather striking, isn't it? It's rather striking because Jacob has only manifested time and again incredible forbearance with his daughters. Not only was he unwilling to cast off Leah, though it would have been legitimate for him to do so, as we saw last time, for her sake, very plainly, and out of love to her, he keeps her still. Yet Laban is here accusing, accusing Jacob of this kind of miserly, miserly heart toward his daughters. It's incredible. And then when you come to verse 52, striking, isn't it, that, that Laban is now fearful that, that Jacob may cross into Canaan, there find God's blessing, and then, and then bring an army, as it were, back to revisit upon Laban all of the wickedness that Laban had prosecuted against him. We've not seen that in Jacob. In fact, Laban has only seen time and again for decades that Jacob bore patiently, even though Laban had changed the terms, first of all, of the marriages between Leah and Rachel, and then also in terms of the cattle. Jacob has been a picture of patience, and yet here Laban would, would have us believe that Jacob has somehow been, been conniving in the background, just waiting, as it were, to, to destroy Laban. It's an, incredible, it's an incredible picture of an ungodly man. An incredible picture of a man devoid of grace. So as we leave this text, I want us to close with some basic questions. So I want to return to the question that we began with, and that is, why do we have this text? It's, an, it's a remarkable episode that we have here, but I want you to note, friend, that this is an episode that we don't really return to in the book of Genesis. In fact, this is an episode that the significance of it, uh, in terms of its later historical usage, it's, it's very minimal. Uh, we don't return to these elements, uh, really. So why this text? Uh, I want you to notice, friend, that that's an important question. But there might be a way to ask that question uh, that, that perhaps lends easier um, an answer. And that is, what do we lack if we didn't have this text? What would we lack if, for instance, the inspired historian simply said, and God commanded Jacob to return to Canaan, and Jacob did with all of his wealth? What would we lack? Well, friend, I would submit to you that we lack quite a lot. This text is a wonderful picture of Jacob. It is Jacob primarily that you and I learn most of here. I want you to notice we see quite a lot of his character. As you look at his appeals to his wives at the beginning of this text, you recognize that Jacob is blameless. Those who knew him best, Jacob knew he could take to them his case, and he knew that they knew the truth. Friend, this is a man who is blameless in his dealings at home and in the field. 
The second thing I want you to notice too is that this is a man who is richly blessed and also deeply patient. He is willing to let God do what God has promised, even if it means Jacob suffers. He commits himself to God's care, and he does so with great patience. You and I also learn in this text that the man is obedient. And friend, this is quite striking, isn't it? Because the obedience that you see in Jacob here comes even under the threat of Laban's pursuit. Jacob knows. Jacob knows it's dangerous to flee Laban. But God has commanded. And when his God commands, Jacob obeys. You also are supposed to see here that he's not idolatrous. Uh, friend, what you notice here is that Rachel, Rachel does this by herself, and she does not apprise Jacob. Secondly, you notice that Laban sees that Jacob is not idolatrous. You remember that question is a striking one. He says there, he says, you must go, he says, to your father's house. Yet wherefore hast thou stolen my gods? Uh, Laban's quite clear, Jacob does not worship his gods. His idols are not Jacob's. What you're also supposed to notice here is that in Jacob's apology, that is his defense for what he has done that you find in verses 38 and following, Laban offers no response, which means, again, Jacob is blameless even according to Laban. And finally, you see his character, his willingness to come under the oath of his God. Um, All of these things testify to us that Jacob is an incredibly godly man. The second aspect of Jacob's life that you and I learn here is that he is also a man incredibly afflicted. Again, if you go to the very first verse, you and I encounter that the fact that these men in Laban's house did not want Jacob to possess anything. And so the possessives, as we see throughout this text, are consistently taken away from Jacob and given to Laban. They are Laban's daughters, Laban's children, Laban's flock, Laban's wealth and glory when in fact God had given those things to Jacob. I want you to notice too, Fred, he's a 60-year-old man, or a little bit older than that at this point, and he has to flee from his father-in-law. That's not a small affliction. And then finally, friend, as as I already highlighted, Laban's lack of love for Jacob is so striking when you contemplate how lovingly Jacob has dealt with him how careful he has been with his father-in-law, not to allow his father-in-law even to lose one sheep without that cost being incurred on Jacob's head. Now, friend, all of this is to show us the patriarch. If we wouldn't have this text, we would not see Jacob, I believe, so clearly as we do here. A man deeply tried, but a man who was proven to be gracious. Now, I do want to close with... Simple observation. I know my time is gone here, but I don't know if you recognize, but this is the first text that you and I find in the entirety of the Old Testament in which an idol is referred to. There is no idolatry before this text, at least no idolatry mentioned. And so I want to briefly raise that question. What is going on here? And and especially given the fact that idolatry will become such a big theme later in the book, why is it that we are only apprised here of this practice of idolatry? There is a contemporary 
a reference in the book of, in, the, in the scriptures. It's taken from Job 31. I just want to read that text to you briefly, and then and then I'll answer the question more directly. Job writes, "If I beheld the sun when it shined, or the moon walking in brightness, and my heart hath been secretly enticed, or my mouth hath kissed my hand." This also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge, for I should have denied the God that is above. Striking what Job says there, he's saying that in his day, and you remember Job and Jacob are contemporaries. That's very clear. Bildad, you remember, is a Shuite, which means he's a descendant of the children of Ketira, who was Abraham's second wife after the death of Sarai. So Job is writing roughly the same time that we see what you have in our text before us this morning. And what Job says is that there was apparently a practice, though punished by the judges in the East, where men would, as it were, do some act, some gesture or genuflection toward the sun. And he would say, and Job says that that was a way of departing from God. And Job says he won't do that. Now, If we hold this text together with that, what you and I are supposed to recognize is that idolatry is very new at this point. Very new. And we can go into this at some considerable length later. The idea is at this point, you and I are now being acquainted with the idea of false gods. That's an important point that we'll revisit. But I also want you to notice that secular history itself bears witness to this fact. Something that we've lost for some reason in Christian theology is that theologians spent a lot of time from the 3rd century to the 17th century asking the question of the origin of idolatry. Well, Lactantius very helpfully mined the depths of the archives in the 4th century in Greece and showed us precisely where all of these things come from. Just to give you a very, very brief explanation of these things, Immediately after the global flood, and this is according to Greek records, there were kings, great kings, one by the name of Jupiter, another one by the name of Neptune. Jupiter and Neptune were brothers. Neptune was supposed to be a sailor. He was supposed to keep the coasts from pirates. Jupiter was simply a man, a king, who had ruled over a large swath of land. Over time, however, after their death... These men had temples erected for them. And then a king who is simply a mariner becomes the quote-unquote god of the sea. Jupiter, who is simply a king of of a great empire, becomes the supreme deity. You see this in Egypt as well. Um, All of these elements are very new. That's what Lactantius teaches us. And all of that very much confirms what you have in our text. Idolatry, now just several hundred years removed from the flood, is only now beginning to grip mankind. So we close, friend, this text looking at two things. We look, of course, at Laban and his deceitfulness. We see an absence of grace in the heart of man. You and I are also supposed to see here God's preserving grace as he keeps Jacob faithful, a godly man under even some of the greatest and most heated furnaces of affliction. And may the Lord make us more and more like what we see in our text in Jacob. Let's close our time this morning by coming to the throne of grace once more.
our blessed and eternal God, we thank you and we praise you that you are God over all. That you are the only, the living and the true God who works his will. And Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you and we praise you that though your people are visited with affliction, you are pleased to uphold them by your own hand, to open even to them um, the conduits of your grace, that they might be faithful and stand in their hour of trial. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that it leaves us without any room for anxiety or fear, that we may entrust ourselves to our God to keep us. And so, Father, we ask that you would, that you would lead us, increase our faith to rest upon you. And we ask, Father, that you would do this great work, uh, keeping us faithful in our trials for your own name's sake. As we ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.